0: Oh, the children. You want to escape. Don't you want to stay and hear me preach? (laughs) The children are dismissed for church downstairs. This is kind of romantic today, eh, folks? I figured it's either romantic without the lights or it's a great time to sleep. I'll try to help you avoid the second alternative. We're back in John chapter 5 this morning, so if you want to turn there. Last week we focused on the first 16 verses of this chapter and we learned that Jesus had actually put his ministry in his home province of Galilee on hold so that he could go back to the city of Jerusalem. And he went back to the city of Jerusalem so that he could participate in a feast of the Jews according to verse 1. Well, in Jerusalem, he visited that pool at Bethesda. And because of some kind of urban legend or superstition associated with the pool, it had become a place where sick people would gather in hopes of being healed when the water is stirred up, according to verse 7. As a result... Jesus found a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered at this pool. Now, it may not have been as big a crowd as we get at the Air Canada Centre in Toronto, but, but this is a large crowd of sick people. would not have been a pretty sight. And it was probably not a place where healthy people would prefer to go. And yet, that's where Jesus went. And while there, He picked out one man out of a multitude of sick people. A man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And He said to him, According to verse eight, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. After 38 years, and notice verse nine: immediately, the man became well, and pick up picked up his pallet, and began to walk. That's incredible, an unbelievable miracle. Can you imagine being that lame man? Immediately, instantaneously, he was healed after 38 years of struggle. Struggling to cope with life while trapped in this broken body. Obviously, this was just another one of those signs. Like that time in Cana of Galilee where Jesus turned water into wine and saved a wedding feast. Or that time when He healed that nobleman's dying son in Capernaum. This too. This miracle. It provides more evidence that this Jesus, He's no ordinary man. And for sure, It supports the apostle John's reason for writing this account of the life and ministry of Jesus as we, he disclosed for us in John chapter 20 verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. These displays of supernatural power were signs pointing to Jesus true identity but notice the second half of verse 9 this reveals some important it's an important detail in understanding the apostles primary reason for including this miracle at this point in this gospel account now it was the sabbath day that's the key that unlocks the door to understanding the significance of this event. Notice verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. I was raised in a home where hunting and fishing were a, They were significant extracurricular activities. In fact, my, my dad and... My brothers' and sisters' families are still very much involved in that kind of activity. As far back as I can remember, we've always had hunting dogs, beagles, black and tan, blue heelers, that we use for hunting rabbits. And I have to admit that in my younger years, I've jumped on not a few brush piles over the years. I can remember walking through cornfields hunting pheasants. And I can even remember pushing a few coolies in southern Saskatchewan during white-tailed whitetail deer season. All for the purpose of flushing out the game from their places of hiding. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 5. He's flushing out his opposition out into the open. Jesus knew that pushing that Sabbath hot button would expose these unbelieving religious Jews for all to see. And this is not the only occasion that Jesus pushed that Sabbath hot button. It was that time when his disciples picked heads of grain and rolled the grain in their hands and they were eating. The grain on a Sabbath. It's reported in all three synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Significant event. Here in John chapter 5, we see Jesus healing a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus also healed a man with a withered hand in Capernaum. Reported in Matthew, Mark, and Luke again. John chapter 7, Jesus confronts the Jews. About... Possibility of hypocrisy. After all, they were circumcising people on the Sabbath. Jesus healed the man born blind from birth in Jerusalem, John chapter 9. And Jesus healed a woman bent double in Judea in Luke chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, Jesus heals a man with swollen arms and legs with dropsy from Perea. All on the Sabbath. That sacred day. Perhaps the Apostle John was aware of all of these Sabbath day provocations and viewed this healing in Jerusalem at the pool of Bethesda as just a representative example. Regardless, it worked. The unbelief of these self-appointed Sabbath guardians was exposed for, for all to see. And Jesus was labeled as a Sabbath breaker. He was a marked man. He drew a target on his back. No longer would they tolerate the things that this man was doing. From now on, these Jews would become his official opposition. So this morning we want to continue our study by focusing on verses 16 through to the end of verse 24. In these verses, Jesus is accused of making himself equal with God, a charge that he didn't deny. But rather than debate the matter, he turned this occasion into an opportunity to define how making himself equal with God is actually displayed in his relationship with his Father. It's a self-disclosure that is second to none. If you're able, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew, or John chapter five, if you haven't already, and stand with me if you're able, for the reading of God's word. I'll begin reading at verse 16, John chapter five. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he he did not, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And The father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, Even so, the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. May God help us to understand and obey His written word. You may be seated. Father, we come this morning offering ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice because of all that you have done for us. Thank you for Jesus. And specifically for this opportunity to study his life and ministry as presented by the Apostle John. Our prayer would be that everyone here this morning, every one of us, without exception, would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing would have life in his name, eternal life, life forever. Father, as we give ourselves to this study, please transform us by the renewing of our minds so that your thoughts become our thoughts. Transform us from the inside out. Keep us from hypocrisy, pretending to be something that we're not. Help us to be your ambassadors, representatives. That are representing you well. By your power and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Jesus, he could have questioned or corrected or maybe even just dismissed the Jewish interpretations and applications of what they associated with the, the Sabbath law. He could have tried rationalizing or justifying the things that he was doing on the Sabbath. But he didn't. Instead... Jesus defended his Sabbath day activities by identifying with God personally. Look at verse 17. But he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. That statement pushed these Jews over the edge. That was it. Look at verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Verse 16. The Jews were persecuting Jesus. Just two verses later, the Jews... We're seeking all the more to kill Him. That's quite an escalation in hostility, isn't it? And why? Because they understood that Jesus was making Himself equal with God. And so in their mind, there was absolutely no doubt Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. By referring to God as my Father, He was making Himself equal with God. And then by claiming to be an extension of the Father's work, He's continued to work on the Sabbath, so I'm continuing to work on the Sabbath. Which was again, making Himself equal with God. For these Jews, it was a double whammy Very definition of blasphemy. You may want to take a pen and actually underline that phrase at the end of verse 18. Making himself equal with God. That's the central idea of this entire discourse that begins in verse 17 and goes all the way through to the end of verse 47. These are all words coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. And over the next number of weeks, we will break this passage down into bite-sized pieces. But but at the same time, I don't want us to lose sight the fact that this is one long discourse that originated with Jesus' healing of that man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. It is here that Jesus reveals himself as God dressed in human flesh. It's an exceptional self-revelation. And we've heard the testimony of others concerning Jesus' true identity. In John chapter 1, it begins with the Apostle John himself in that prologue to the book. Then it moves to John the Baptist and then to Jesus' earliest disciples, all testifying that he is the Christ. Chapter 2, it turns from the words of testimony to the works of Jesus himself as he performs that miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And then moves to Jerusalem where he cleanses out the temple. In chapter 3, we find the teacher of Israel coming to Jesus and sitting down with Him. Conversation. An exchange that takes place with Nicodemus. And then Jesus in chapter 4 influences an entire town in the province of Samaria on His way back home to Galilee. All these words and works of Jesus, they're meant to legitimize him, to offer proof that he's a man, for sure, but he's much more than a man. And here in John chapter 5, we hear it straight from the horse's mouth, as my mother used to say. Jesus is taking the witness stand. Marge, can I share something with you? I might need that back though. (laughs) This morning, uh, Jesus takes the witness stand and testifies of his relationship to the Father. It doesn't get any better than that. And let me just say that the Gospel stands or falls here. We are standing at the very foundation of our Christian faith. If we get this wrong, it all becomes smoke and mirrors. C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, wrote these often quoted words, and I'll read them. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And I would add, neither did the Apostle John. And neither does the Rock Community Church. Liar. Lunatic or lord you must make the choice and it's a choice that only you can make nobody can make it for you and remember not choosing is a choice look at verses 19 to 22 in John chapter 5 How many are using NASB or ESV this morning? Copy of the scriptures. Number of you. Notice the middle of verse 19. Is that little word for? F-O-R. In the NIV I think they use because. But we find that little word for. Again, at the beginning of verse 20, 4. 21, 4. 22, 4. I think 22 the NIV uses moreover. If you're in the habit of marking up your Bible, you may want to circle those fours. There are four of them. They indicate the four ways in which Jesus defines his relationship with the Father. Oh, by the way, the Jews did have it right. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four states it clearly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. Ephesians chapter four, verse six. One God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One God and yet three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is a triune God. Three persons existing in perfect community. And so we are Trinitarians. We believe that we worship a one, three-person God. How does that work? Well, that's exactly what Jesus wants to talk about here in John chapter 5. Not entirely. This is not a comprehensive explanation covering everything about their relationship. But we do gain insights. Into Jesus' relationship with the Father here in verses 19 to 22. I'll give you four words. Collaborative, intimate, complementary, and clear. Those would be the words that I would use to summarize how Jesus defined his relationship with the Father. The Jews, they claimed he was making himself equal with God. Here is Jesus' answer. Look at verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. Did you catch that phrase? The Son can do nothing of Himself. The Father-Son relationship Is collaborative. Look down the page at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Nothing on His own initiative. His judgments are the Father's judgments. He is seeking his own, he's not seeking his own will, but the Father's will. John chapter 8 verse 16. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. It is a collaborative judgment. Remember that divide and conquer strategy we used as kids? Dad would say no and off to mum we would go. That never really worked in the home where I grew up, but it won't work here either with God the Father and God the Son. They are in perfect harmony all the time. Listen to John chapter 12, verse 49. For I did not speak on my own. This is Jesus speaking. I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what to say and what to speak. Wow, that, that sounds pretty comprehensive to me. Then in John chapter 14, verse 10, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. What the Father is doing and saying, that's what Jesus did and said. We see the Father in the Son. So Jesus answered the making himself equal with God charge with an admission. All his words and deeds, all his actions and reactions are in perfect harmony with what the Father was doing and saying. I'm not suggesting that he was some kind of ventriloquist puppet nor am I suggesting that he was it's a slave master relationship where you're not paid to think. just do it. was not that kind of relationship. It was more like a, a father-son relationship where the son is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of the father's nature. Hebrews chapter one verse three. This was never intended and never was a solo flight for Jesus. But the Jews, they were seeking to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. It's your call. Liar? Lunatic? Or Lord? Jesus defined his relationship with the Father as collaborative. Notice verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. The father-son relationship is intimate. It's interesting that the father's love precipitates a a continuous self-disclosure to the son. And it's a complete self-disclosure. He shows him all things. There are no secrets, no surprises, no hidden agendas here. Perhaps perfect love is, is like that. Totally transparent. If we really love someone, we'll want them to know us as we really are. As risky as that may be at times, but Love conquers those kinds of fears. John chapter 14 verse 21 reads, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Here again, love is tied to self-disclosure. When we were young, instead of saying goodbye, when we left the house, we'd often shout out, love you, Mom! To which you could hear her respond, actions speak louder than words. (laughs) Great. The Father's disclosure is an action that proved his love for the Son. These Jews had witnessed the healing of the sick man at Bethesda. And there was more to come. In fact, greater works to come. Things that would take their breath away, cause them to marvel, leave them amazed, astonish them. In other words, according to Jesus' testimony here in verse 20, the best was yet to come. And yet these Jews were seeking to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. What, what's your assessment? Liar, lunatic, or Lord? Jesus defined his relationship with the Father as collaborative, intimate, and now look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life, to whom he wishes. The father-son relationship is complementary. They are capable, engaged, in doing very similar activities. Now in the minds of these Jewish onlookers, God was the only one who could raise someone from the dead. Matters of life and death were completely in God's hands. No one else's. In fact, Job's chapter 14, verse 5 reads, A person's days are predetermined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. The length of our days are determined by God. But in John chapter 11, you'll remember that story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had died prior to Jesus' arrival. His body had been placed in a tomb three days earlier. Jesus shows up and tells them to open up the tomb. He called Lazarus to come out. And amazingly, Lazarus' physical life was restored. When he first arrived on site, Jesus had said to Lazarus' sister Martha, these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He's about to prove that. He had the power to restore physical life. But just as Jesus chose to center out that sick man in the midst of a multitude of sick people at the pool of Bethesda. So he chooses those who he he will give eternal spiritual life. Did you choose me? You didn't choose me, he says. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit. In John chapter 15, verse 16. The life being referred to here in John chapter 5 verse 21 is both physical and spiritual. It's pointing to the eschatological or the resurrected physical life that is still yet future. It's also pointing to that eternal spiritual life that is available right now as we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So what do you think? Liar, lunatic, or Lord? Jesus defined his relationship with the Father as collaborative, intimate, complementary. Now look at verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. The father-son relationship is clear. Clear in the sense that there's no confusion in the relationship between them. The father knows his role and the son. Although equal with God, the father in essence had some specific role responsibilities that made him functionally subservient to the father. And he was okay with that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 28 is speaking of a specific time yet future, and it, write, and it reads, "When all things are subject to subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all." But until then, it is the Father who has assigned all judgment to the Son. And that makes sense to me, doesn't it, to you? That the that the son would be assigned the responsibility of judge. After all, he's been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without son. He is an informed, sympathetic judge who is identified with humanity. God dressed in human flesh. What do we do with John chapter three verse seventeen? Studied that earlier. A famous verse, John chapter three verse sixteen, but verse seventeen reads, "God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him." That speaks of Jesus' purpose in His incarnation, why Jesus came. But in the end, just as people are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. And on that day, we will be standing before Jesus, the judge, to give an account for the things that we've done while in the flesh. And for believers who are trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, it will be a time of celebration. For unbelievers, it will be the first day of their eternal torment. Verse 23, you'll notice, starts with, so that. That should raise a red flag. That means it's a purpose statement. God made Jesus judge, so that. Why has the Father assigned all judgment to the Son? Well, let's read it. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So that he'll be honored, respected, valued. Remember how he was welcomed back to his home province of Galilee? A prophet has no honor in his home country. That, my friends, would have grieved the father. In the end, it won't be so. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11 to 11 reads, For this reason also God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The Father has ensured that the Son will receive the honor that's due his name. But the Jews, they were seeking to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. So what's your verdict? Liar, lunatic, or Lord? It's a choice that only you can make. It's your choice. No one can make it for you, and it's a choice with eternal consequences. Jesus defined his relationship with the Father as collaborative, intimate, complementary, and clear. But look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Here Jesus pro- provides the the implications and applications of what he has been just real, revealed about his relationship with the Father. Both the Father and the Son give life, according to verse 21. Additionally, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 22. So now what? What are you and I supposed to do with that? Well, Jesus tells us what an appropriate response might look like. Two things. Hear His Word. And He means not just hear it, but hear it with comprehension. And secondly, believe Him who sent me. Hear and believe. It's not complicated. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. In fact, without God's divine enablement or intervention, it's impossible. You and I are incapable of figuring this out on our own. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But a natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them. And then in addition to that that reality of our own personal sin and depravity, then we have the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel. It's not easy, but it is possible. That is, after all, why the Apostle John wrote this gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ so that you may hear and read what he wrote and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. The Apostle Peter had a similar message. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died to bring sinners safely home to God. And I love that image. Safely home to God. And for those that are already trusting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the message is the same. Hear and believe. And belief is always displayed in obedience. If you don't obey, there's only two reasons. You didn't hear it or you didn't believe it. And there's all kinds of reasons that explain why we wouldn't believe it. The big three according to John again in his first epistle the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life or to put it in ways that we might understand it more clearly, the New Living Translation translates those words, a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that we see, and the pride of our achievements and possessions. And trust me, in in those cases, hearing aids won't help. Confession is the only thing that will. Hear and believe. And belief always results in obedience. If you really believe it, you'll obey it. He who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. The Jews were seeking to kill him because he was claiming to be equal with God. Jesus defines his relationship with the Father in a way that can be summarized with just four words. Collaborative, intimate, complementary, and clear. So what do you think? Liar, lunatic, or Lord? The choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your one and only son into the world, not to judge the world, but the world but that the world might be saved through him. And although he existed in the form of God, he did not requ- regard equality with God something to be grasped or denied. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Enable us to choose rightly. To accept him as both Savior and Lord. Lord and to live lives that increasingly give evidence of that choice. Obedient lives, working out the salvation that you're working in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.